Lord, we come before you this morning and we do confess, we want to confess boldly that there is no other name that compares with the name of Jesus. He is our Savior. He is exalted. He is reigning at your right hand. He is the light of the world who made a way for us to be able to come before you. And so it's for that reason that we bring our requests to you today. And we pray for this church, for this, uh, this congregation, this local body of believers, for South Canyon Baptist Church. We pray uh, today for our worship. Uh, we know that we were created to worship you. Our purpose, the end for which uh, you made all things, is for your glory and that you would receive uh, the worship that is due your name. We pray that we would approach you with reverence and with awe in light of your, your burning and bright holiness and your, your majesty and your splendor. For you are the God who created all things by speaking them into existence. You are the God who dwells in unapproachable light. At the same time, we pray not only that we would have the proper, the proper reverence and the proper awe, but we would also have the appropriate joy and gratitude that is fitting for us as redeemed saints. May we rejoice with trembling as your word instructs us. We pray you would increase our joy because of your great mercy and compassion, because you sent your son to become man, to humble himself to the point of death on a cross, to bring us peace and bring us eternal life. For there is no better news, there is no greater love than this. And so we pray that we would have joy and we would have gratitude. We pray for our, our times of corporate gatherings, such as this service right now and such as our, our service uh, this evening. And every time that we gather, we pray you would help us to, to sing the Bible, to pray the Bible, to read and to preach the Bible. We pray in particular for our singing as, as a congregation, that you would help us, help us to enthusiastically sing your praise because of your character, who you are, and the saving acts that you have done, ultimately, and, and the pinnacle in the person of Jesus Christ. And also help us to, to loudly sing to one another, to encourage each other, to encourage our brothers and sisters to hold fast to their faith, to remind each other how good, how steadfast, how trustworthy you are. And so we pray you'd help us to engage our minds with the truth of what we're singing so that the truth and the beauty of the gospel, of the word of Christ, would ignite our affections and so we likewise pray you help us to engage our emotions, our affections, in response to your love, to your mercy. And may the gift of music help us to feel more deeply what we know to be true, so that we respond in faith, that you open the eyes of our hearts, and that we would see with eyes of faith, and that we would respond with the praise and the adoration that you deserve. And this morning, we also remember and acknowledge you are God, not only of this church, not only of, uh, of this city or even of this country, but you are God of the whole world. And so this morning, we want to pray um, for uh, the, the West African country, 
the Ivory Coast or the, the Côte d'Ivoire. We pray for the, the 25 million people who live there. Um, we do think and we pray for their physical needs, even just for basic uh, sanitation and safe drinking water. Uh, we pray for this country that is considered only, only minimally reached by the gospel. Uh, and we ask that you would raise up um, more Christians, more uh, medical workers, and other resources that would, would help to address uh, the, the very real and the significant barriers that are there, uh, things like high mortality rates, uh, just so much uh, human and physical need. Uh, and yet along with that, we pray for the spiritual needs there, uh, which, are, which are ultimate, which are eternal, which are so urgent. Uh, and in particular, we pray for the large Muslim population there in the Ivory Coast, we ask you would create inroads, you would open a way for the gospel to spread throughout the Muslim community. And we pray for the Christians there, for our brothers and sisters in Christ there in West Africa. We pray you help them to resist, that you would protect them from the lure of, of traditional um, things like animism and ancestor worship. Uh, that rather that they would have the strength to reject what is, what is evil, what is contrary to your word, and to hold fast to what is good and true, to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, God, we pray the same thing for us, for South Canyon Baptist Church, that you would protect us uh, from, from the influences and, and pursuits around us, the worldly values that are promoted all around us. Give us the strength to reject the, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of power, uh, reject self-promotion and self-sufficiency, and instead that we would be glad to decrease so that Christ might increase, that we would be wholeheartedly devoted to the good and true gospel of your Son, and it's in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. 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 Let me invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 12 going to look at the very last part of this chapter, Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and I would encourage you to reach under one of those chairs and take a Bible, and if you do that, you can turn to page 1009 and follow along as we read these verses here in just a moment together. Today, as we come to this, in a sense, climax some have suggested that chapter 13 is almost like a PS, sort of a postscript, because it's as if the sermon comes to its climax. And by the way, you may have heard me say this before or maybe not. Most people believe that the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon, a sermon that was later recorded for the people to whom it was delivered. These Hebrew background believers or professing believers in Jesus Christ and today as we come to the end of chapter 12, the end of what might have been the sermon, we come to what is called an unshakable kingdom. And I want us to think together about that this morning. But first, let's read together. Hebrews 12, you follow along as I read beginning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, 
His voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 12, I want to remind you that this book was written to those who identified themselves as the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They had a Hebrew background, they were Jews, and they had come to profess that Jesus Christ was the Savior, the Messiah. And yet persecution began, particularly possibly among even their own ancestors or their relatives those who still held tightly to the old covenant rather than embracing the new covenant that Jesus Christ himself established. And so the book of Hebrews is written to those who were identified as the people of God. In the Old Testament, the physical descendants of Israel were identified as the people of God. Now the professing believers in Jesus are identified as the people of God. And what I want us to see in our text this morning can basically be put into two short statements. The first statement is this, the past should inform us in the present. That is, those of us who identify as the people of God, those of us who claim faith in Jesus Christ, we should be informed by the past. The past should inform us in the present. Maybe you've heard the saying, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And that's unfortunately often true. And the writer of Hebrews wants those that he is addressing to learn from their history, from the Hebrews who had gone before them, their forefathers that we read about in the Old Testament. He wants them and he wants us to learn from the past, to learn and be informed in the present by what has happened in the past. One of the things that's especially unique about this paragraph that we're looking at this morning is this. It begins and it ends with an admonition or we could say an application And one of the things you always want to do when you come to God's Word is apply it to your life. And in our text, we are told very clearly how we're supposed to do that with the things that we're going to see in our text this morning. So, notice verse 25 as we begin. And notice it is this. It is an admonition, an application that he is giving to the original readers and to you and to me in light of the past. Verse 25, he says, See 
that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let me just summarize very simply what the application is that we see at the very beginning of the text this morning. We could put it this way. Obey his word. Obey his word. See to it that you do not refuse him, meaning God in Christ, who speaks. The book of Hebrews begins talking about how God spoke in times past through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken in and through his Son. Do not refuse him who is speaking. You see, when we neglect to listen when we refuse to believe and to obey what God in Christ is saying to us, we are refusing Him. It's personal. That's how the writer makes us think about it. In verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse Him. Him who is speaking. God in Christ. Now the writer of Hebrews is speaking, as I've just said, likely this is a sermon. And this has become and is a part of God's Word. And so God was speaking through this message, the message of the book of Hebrews. And essentially what we are told as the sermon possibly likely is coming to a conclusion is that we must listen, that we must obey God's Word. Let me remind you some of the things that God has spoken in Christ from heaven through the book of Hebrews that we've come across so far. Just a few, just to remember. God has said in the book of Hebrews, hold your original confidence firm to the end. As I mentioned earlier, these are people who had a Hebrew background and they expressed and confessed confidence in Christ as their Lord and Savior, but now there's persecution. And so he's saying, hold your original confidence firm to the end. He also has said, and God has spoken in the book of Hebrews and said this, strive to enter my Sabbath rest. Strive to enter my Sabbath rest. And in that context, he's talking about their ancestors who in the wilderness did not obey God's word. They did not obey and believe God's promises. They refused him and they didn't enter into the promised land. Their carcasses fell in the wilderness. Hebrews tells us earlier, they all died. They didn't make it. And so he says, already in the book to these believers or professing believers, strive to enter my Sabbath rest, meaning ultimately heaven. The kingdom that is coming that cannot be shaken. The book of Hebrews has also said to us at this point, strive to draw near with a true heart in full assurance. 
Strive to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Strive to consider one another to provoke one another or stir one another up to love and good deeds. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but more and more as you see the day approaching. Our text comes to the day that he was referring to there. The day when everything is going to be shaken that is to come. The past, you see, informs or should inform our present if we identify ourselves as the people of God. And here's the logic of verse 25. Let me give it to you. They, meaning your ancestors in the past, the Jewish nation of Israel in the past, they refused him, God on Sinai, who warned them on earth, and they did not escape. God came down to Mount Sinai, which was on earth, and God spoke. And of course, the people were afraid, because when he spoke, the ground shook and the mountain shook. And so they cried out not to hear from God anymore, but for God to speak to Moses and for Moses to speak God's word to them. And they didn't listen to God speaking to them through Moses in the wilderness. They'd come out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert. And they continued to disobey God. And so they never entered that rest that the promised land represented. God's Sabbath rest. Now here's how he applies it to the present. The present readers at that time and to us who are readers today who identify as the people of God. If we reject him, that is God in Christ. If we reject him who warns us from heaven, that's where Christ is, then we will not escape. They refused him who warned them on earth, and they did not escape. And if we reject him, God in Christ in heaven, who warns us from heaven, then we will not escape the dreadful things that we have been warned of in the book of Hebrews. If you've been here for hardly any of the series through Hebrews, you know that there are some severe warnings and stern and solemn warnings given in the book of Hebrews. In the past, they didn't listen to God's warnings on earth. Let's not make the same mistake is what the author is saying. Let's listen to God in Christ who is speaking to us from heaven as he warns us. And let me just give you one example of a warning that we've already come to in the book of Hebrews. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. If you go on sinning deliberately, after you have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for or expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will devour the adversaries. That's quite a warning. If we Go on sinning deliberately after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we turn away from trusting in Christ and following Christ, there is no other way for anyone to be saved. 
Christ's sacrifice is the only hope that we have and the only thing that a person who might even identify as one of the people of God, the only hope that person has is judgment and it's not hope. The only expectation that that person has is for judgment and a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. Listen. Obey his word. Obey his word. Again, this is a theme that, has, that we've seen many times before in the book of Hebrews. Several times. There is an Old Testament text, actually a psalm, that is quoted several times in the book of Hebrews as a whole or in part, and this is what the psalm says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did. Meaning, again, the forefathers, their forefathers, as they did in the rebellion in the wilderness or in the desert. They rebelled against God's commands, God's word, God's promises. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that the key word in this quote from this psalm is today, today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion in the wilderness. What this means is, when you hear God's voice, which is what you hear whenever you hear God's word, the Bible, when you hear God's voice, you shouldn't say, Tomorrow, I will repent. I will believe. Tomorrow, I will obey. Don't do that. That's what he's saying. Today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because when you say tomorrow, I'll repent. Tomorrow, I'll obey. Tomorrow, I'll believe. It's very easy when tomorrow comes... When tomorrow becomes today, it becomes hard again or easy at that point to say, tomorrow, I'll do it. Don't do that because the writer of Hebrews is saying, as he quotes the psalmist, that hardens your heart. Your heart becomes harder every time you fail to obey and to respond to God's word. If we hear God's word and don't heed God's word, we harden our hearts. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. And that's what happened in the wilderness. That's what happened in the history of Israel. So, the past should inform us in the present. Now, I want us to spend the majority of our time as we continue on these last verses, verses 26 and following. And here we see another statement, or I could give you another statement, that I think summarizes what we're seeing in the last verses of, our, of our, this chapter the promised should impact us in the present. So the past and the promised should impact us in the present. The past, what happened in the past, and what's promised of God and by God in relationship to the future, both of those should impact us, should inform us in the present. At Sinai, their ancestors had experienced a mountain that shook. 
In these verses that we're about to come to, we're going to see that in Jesus we experience a kingdom that is unshakable. At Mount Sinai, we saw this in our text last week, God came down on Mount Sinai. Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And the people were told not to even come close to the bottom of the mountain. And God came down and there was fire and there was smoke and there was thunder and there was lightning and there was a trumpet that continued to get louder and louder and louder. It was a terrifying experience. Moses himself said, I tremble in fear. The mountain shook. But here's the good news. Through Jesus Christ, in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, meaning at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, that is, God has promised this, yet once more. I will shake not only the earth, as he did at Sinai, but also the heavens. I will shake the earth, but not only the earth, also the heavens. This is a quote from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. And the writer is saying that One of your prophets, one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, Haggai, has said this, and this is God's promise. That's going to happen. This is going to happen in the future, and it should affect us who identify as the people of God in the present. Now, what does this mean? He goes on to say, verse 27, This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, are shakable. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. So God has promised to shake heaven and earth. And as a result, there will be things that are removed... That is, the things that are made, the things that are shakable, they will be removed from heaven and earth. But, also, he says, there will be things that will remain. That is, the things that are unshakable, and that's what he's talking about here as he speaks about his kingdom. God is going to shake Everything that can be shaken. And let me just answer a question you may have. What can be shaken? Everything and everyone who is not a part of the kingdom of God. Everything and everyone who is not a part of the kingdom of God can be shaken and will be shaken on this day, once more, one last time. God is going to shake everything. He's talking here about that day, right? We're supposed to gather together and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together so that we can stir one another toward love and good deeds until, as we see, rather, the day approaching. 
and the day's approaching. And I've got a, a prophecy for you this morning. We are closer than we've ever been to that day. And that's why every day we need to hear his voice. And every day we need to encourage one another and we need to gather together to do that as God's people. God's going to shake heaven and earth. Not just the earth as he did at Sinai, but the heavens and the earth. Now what does that mean? You may remember some of you that Paul talked about being caught up to the third heaven. Do any of you remember that? Paul talking about an experience he had. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It was a thing that he didn't have a lot of details about, but he said he was caught up to the third heaven, which implies there's a first heaven and there's a second heaven, right? So as you study the Bible, here's what I think basically you find out about the heavens. The atmosphere of the earth is the first heaven. Sometimes it's referred to as heaven, the atmosphere of the earth. And then there's space beyond that. And then the third heaven is the presence of God. Remember, Jesus taught us in the prayer that he gave us to pray to begin our prayer by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. He's in heaven. Where God is is not going to be shaken. Right? That's where his kingdom is. That's where he reigns. That's where the city is that we talked about last week. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, occupied by innumerable angels and by the spirits of the righteous, made perfect, and by God, the judge of all, and by Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood of Jesus. That's, that's where God is. But he's talking here about the atmosphere of the earth, and he's talking about space. And when Jesus returns to the earth, this new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God, the Bible tells us. And a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells will be what follows. The end is coming. We don't know when. It's foolish and unbiblical for us to guess. But one day, Christ is going to come, and everything that can be shaken, you might say everything that's not nailed down, and the only thing that's nailed down is the kingdom of God, and those who are a part of that kingdom, it's going to be shaken. The glory of the Lord at that time after Christ comes and his kingdom comes that's unshakable the glory of the Lord will be the light within our midst he will dwell God will dwell again with us the book of the Revelation puts it like this the kingdoms of this world have become this means that this is talking about after this the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and of his kingdom there shall be no end the history of the world is the history of kingdoms the Roman Empire the Babylonian Empire the communist Empire 
And yet all of them, all of them were shakable. And they were removed. One day, there's going to be this climax, and Jesus Christ is going to come for us. I want you to notice in the last two verses our last admonition or application. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So we said our first application at the beginning of our text was obey his word Here at the end of our text, the application, the admonition is offer him worship. Offer him worship, worship that is acceptable to God. Listen again, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This tells us that there are two things that are essential for acceptable worship. The first is appreciation or gratitude, and the second is awe. Worship is acceptable when appreciation is the motive for our worship, and awe is the manner of our worship. Appreciation. Genuine gratitude that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Notice we're receiving this kingdom. We're not earning it. We're not creating it. We're receiving it. Because it already exists. It exists in heaven. And one day heaven is going to literally come down to earth. Heaven is going to one day be on this earth. And that's what's going to happen after the shaking takes place. And we should be filled with gratitude that we are receiving this kingdom, that this kingdom is ours, that we are a part of this kingdom. That's what should motivate our worship. And yet awe should always also be the manner in which we worship. Notice how the text ends, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, and so we worship Him not only with appreciation, but with awe. Have you noticed the the thread or the theme of fire in our last several texts? How did God come down on Sinai? He came down on Sinai as fire or in fire. And then our text continues to speak about this again and again and again. What does it mean? You may not know this, but verse 29 is a partial quote from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it says, Our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And we need to understand that. And that's why he speaks of it here. And it should inform our worship, how we worship. That our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now when we hear the word jealous, we think negatively. Because among us, it always is. 
Jealousy among human beings is never pure and perfect. It's proper that a husband would be rightly jealous for and of his wife, and, his, and a wife would be properly jealous of and for her husband. But as humans, it's not perfect. But with God, it is. It is a perfect expression of his love for his people. He is a jealous God. And with human beings, jealousy always has with it that which is sinful, but not so with God. With jealousy, it is not just love. It may have love in it, but there's that which isn't contrary to love in human jealousy, but not so with God. Think about this. You can't be happy until you love most the one that is most lovely. And you can't be happy as a human being until you glorify most that which is most glorious. And so for God to want us to love him most is love for us. Do you see? For God to want us and be jealous for us to love him most is a perfect and, and a complete demonstration of his love for us because that's the only way we can be happy. He's the most glorious. And the only way we can be happy is to give most our, the most glory that we have, give the most glory to that which is most glorious. And so God is jealous for us, for our good, because he loves us. And in that sense, he has a burning jealousy for his people. What a way for the sermon that became the book of Hebrews to end. Of course, we'll continue. The rest of it's God's word too. But most likely, this would have been the end of the sermon, and then he would have begun to give them more scattered and diverse exhortations as we're going to see at the beginning of chapter 13. I want to finish. I want to finish by mentioning acceptable worship and one more thing about it. Worship is more than what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings. Worship is more than that. It's never less than that for a believer, but it's more than that. We should gather and we should sing and we should sing to the Lord and we should sing to one another and we should encourage one another collectively and we should do so with appreciation as our motive, with awe as our manner. But I think what he's primarily talking about here at the end of this text is not necessarily what we do together on the Lord's Day but what we do every day of our life. Listen to Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is us giving our bodies, the members of our bodies, our hands, our eyes, our ears, giving our bodies to God because that's what worship is. Worship is seeking to glorify God in the things that we do the things we see and watch, the things we handle with our hands. That's what worship is, and that's 
what God is calling his people to at the end of this 12th chapter, to worship God with our lives. Let me paraphrase just a little bit, John Piper, and then I'll wrap this up. He says, there is, a, there is little distinction between worship as a congregational service on the one hand and worship as a pattern of daily life on another hand. They both grow from the same root, a radical valuing, cherishing, esteeming, treasuring of God in Christ and a passion for more of Him. And then I like this as he finishes, the impulse for singing a hymn and the impulse for visiting a prisoner are the same, a desire to glorify God. We should worship this God who is jealous for us, which means he loves us. Passionately, he loves us. And he wants our joy. And he knows that he is the only source of ultimate and forever joy. He loves us. And in gratitude for his great love, we should worship him. By singing, yes, but by serving him, serving others for his sake. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. Bow with me and let's pray together. God, help us, enable us by your Spirit, empower us and lead us by your Spirit, God, to live our lives as a perpetual offering to you. In light of receiving an unshakable kingdom, in light of eternal life, seeing you in all of your glory and all of your beauty and ourselves being glorified with you. God, help these promises to affect us in the present. Help us to anticipate these things. Help us to foresee these things and help us to glorify you and to worship you as we live our lives. God, you in Jesus Christ have redeemed us and you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. We long for the day when you will dwell among us and we thank you that you will. And I pray God for those this morning who have not yet received this kingdom by receiving Jesus as their king, as their Lord and as their savior. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you grant them faith so that they could trust and would trust in Jesus only and his blood as the only sacrifice for their sins and be forgiven of their sins today? God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.